Welcome to On The Continent, the only podcast you'll ever need for the biggest stories in European football. I'm Dotson Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Lars Watson. On today's show, the French Ligue 1 title race just got very... Ooh la la. <laughs> the hero of Florence hands in a resignation letter that gives us all something to think about. And at the age of 39, Zlatan is back in the Sweden squad. It's emotional. It's so emotional that Lars is still very tearful about that as well. I know it was emotional for you, so I can't wait to get onto that, uh, Lars. But if you don't mind, leave that for a moment. PSG have changed the dynamics of the top of League and Lars, um, they seem to be back to where they're supposed to be, but they've got competition this time. Yeah, it's 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 pretty tight in the top end of, of Liga, but uh, but developments this weekend uh, has meant that uh, Paris Saint-Germain has drawn ahead of Lille on goal difference. Uh, Lille very, very surprisingly lost to relegation-threatened Nîmes, who are on a decent run, by the way. Uh, but, uh, but crucially, uh, Paris Saint-Germain went away to Lyon, and they were a much higher price uh, with the bookmakers, if you're into that sort of thing, than I think I've ever seen Paris Saint-Germain for a domestic game. I mean, they, they weren't fancied really, because Lyon are, are not a bad team, and there's some injury questions and all that, but they, they turned in. I, I think what most people will agree was their most accomplished performance domestically this season, um, and, and, and and looked good. They, and not only looked good, but they looked, I thought we saw sort of traces of a Maurizio Pochettino team here with them sort of uh, hassling the opponents and, and pressing and chasing, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, it's one of those performances where you can kind of see uh, little hints of the manager's work taking effect here, I think. And I think you're right, Lars, about the team really being physically on it. I, I think that was something that was really notable because, of course, Leon had, having no European football and having far less pressure on their fixture list, had had a whole week to prepare the game. Whereas uh, PSG had, had been in a, a Coupe de France match against Lille, uh, one of their, their title rivals. And, um, you know, they, they look fresh. And I think Rudy Garcia hit the nail on the head at the end when he, he said, you know, I don't think it was anything tactical that lost us this game. They were just physically stronger than us. They were just physically better than us. And um, that's kind of a, a bit of an indictment when you consider that sort of preparation that they they had but it, it just feels sometimes that that, that, that Paris needed that extra le- level of hunger on a, a, a domestic stage I mean th- th- this game's really interesting because I think people would watch it in isolation and think um, here is the team that's better than everyone else in the league and is going to run away with the league they're flexing their muscles against one of the one of the best teams in the division and showing that they're better than everyone else and that there is no argument and certainly for that first hour they were so good and you know knowing what they can do and being able to do something about it are, are two different things I mean the the fourth goal uh, by Mbappe I don't know how many times Leon have conceded that goal to Mbappe, but it's a lot. That ball over the top, uh, and then there he goes, the whip it, and he never misses at the end of it either. I, I think it can be underrated how difficult it is to finish after you've absolutely steamed past the defence like that, but you know it never looked in doubt. But if PSG played like this all the time, 
there would be no competition. We wouldn't be having this discussion. But how many times have they played like, like this this season? Hardly at all. And I think if you go into that game and you look at the sort of mini league between the, the, the teams at the top of the table, and it is a four-team title race, as, as we'll be coming to in, in a minute, Don. The, the fact is that from the direct confrontations with the rest of the top four, PSG had taken one point from the game so far before that game on Sunday. So even though it was an emphatic response, we don't know yet if they can reproduce that on a regular basis, particularly with their, their Champions League commitments as well. If you add on top of that, they lost at home to Marseille earlier in the season. That They have lost against a lot of blue chip opponents so far, this, this, this campaign. And it's really interesting because building up to where the title race goes next, as soon as the international break's done, first game up is Paris Saint-Germain versus Lille. Yeah, which is obviously interesting, and it, it was it was um, it was important for them to to bounce back this week, wasn't it, Andy? Because obviously they had that defeat to Nantes, which is you should you should never mm. lose to Nantes, particularly if you're not if you are PSG. That's very bad, uh, and a game in which um, Mbappe wasn't at his majestic best for once. And then they responded by uh, by beating Lille in the cup and then beating Lyon in in the league now. And then, like you say, they come back to that crucial crucial game against uh, against Lille after the international break. But I have to say, like, there's so many games like I don't watch. Uh, the French league as carefully as you do, Andy. But when I, often I, when I watch PSG, I feel like this, this is a bit of a cheap shot. But they don't often feel like a team. They they they, they feel like a collection of players, and occasionally some of them will do something unbelievably good mm. that no one else will do anytime soon, and then they win the game. But I, I, I definitely thought there were passages of this game where you could see the way like Danilo and um, it was chasing them, and Verratti was chasing them, and you can see that there's a there's a hint of sort of Pochettinoism there. It might be me sort of projecting uh, into this, but I thought they they looked more like a Pochettino team here than I think I've seen them before really and I include the Barcelona games in that yeah this all begs a question though doesn't it and I I know that the point that you were making a moment or two is uh so right Andy because I was thinking a similar thing if it's the Champions League they'll blow hot and cold you know you you see them play one match and you think they're going to win it you see them play another match and you you're shocked that they're even in it and it's um Mm. it's the the, the French league itself now being a four-horse race. I think you made absolutely the right point is, will they do every match till the end, and particularly against the top teams? What is not right then with PSG? Are they a Manchester City, an unstoppable, or Carter's unstoppable sex machine? Or are they... You know, just a, a team that gets lucky every now and then. <laughs> well, I, I think you know, luck comes with the extreme quality that they've got, and I, I think elite top end quality does paper over a lot, a lot of the cracks. And I think you know, that that has been the case for for Paris Saint Germain as, as as much as any other top team in 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 Europe over over recent years. And it's got them through the fact that um, when this goes above and beyond Pochettino and his influence is is covered up the fact that the team building hasn't always been great. And the team building isn't necessarily going to be that much greater going forward because if they re-sign Mbappe and Neymar as they want to do, they're going to be maxed out. And, you know, they're in a situation where 
they're going to have to, and it is, it's, it's been talked about quite a lot in France recently, they're going to have to supplement um, their superstars with young players because there's, there's no other financial way to do it. Now, if you look at it logically, Paris Ile-de-France is such an incredible hotbed of footballing talent. They should be able to do it. But because they've deprioritized the academy so much over the years, I think young players, elite young players from the Parisian region find it, even the ones in the academy in, in many cases, find it hard to see the pathway. I mean, you've just seen um, Koulibaly, one of the young stars, go and go and join Borussia Dortmund uh, about, about 10 days ago. And this is something that's happened before. You know, you look at uh, Coma, you can go back to him. Uh, you look at Zagadou, another one who, who who went off to to Borussia Dortmund. You know, there's this incredible sort of leak of this young talent, which is something that they have to find a way to put a cap on if they're going to grow going forward. And the way they're making do and mending, I mean, Pochettino has really hit on something in the way that he's pushed Marco Verratti further up the pitch. He was terrific in this game against Leon, by the way. Now, you can't v- rely on Verratti to be there all the time because, as we've said so many times before on this show, Lars, he gets injured a lot and he gets suspended a lot and he will throw himself into mad challenges even when he's walking a disciplinary tightrope. He never stops talking, all that sort of stuff. In these games, it's really easy to be convinced that he's one of the top three or four midfielders in the world. He's that good on his day. But yes, I think Pochettino does face this thing going forward of this sort of trying to find this collective that he's been brought there to mould. And the fact that the atmosphere and the way that the squad is constructed is not particularly conducive to that. I mean, what I think, if we broaden it out and talk about the rest of the title race, I think it's really interesting when you look at Lille getting knocked off the top and um, Christophe Galtier, the coach, has, has tried to take a bit of pressure off them and saying, well, well look, you know, no one thought we would be at this point in the season with 63 points. You look at Leon, who are absolutely humbled on their own patch in arguably their biggest game of the season, but are still only three points off the top. And that's after taking eight points in the last six matches, which is nowhere near title form. I think it's, we talked about it, it's a bit easy to be convinced last by the, the individual quality of Paris. Mm. What about the attacking quality of Monaco? Because they went, went and won four 0 at Saint Etienne uh, on Friday, and they are so good to watch, despite having Nico Kovac as the coach. Yeah, despite having uh, <laughs> that was actually in our script that little dig, despite Nico Kovac. But I think that's it's a righteous dig because uh, I think Nico Kovac. It's very odd his trajectory, how he went to Bayern, and they they did win the league, but he sort of left with his reputation diminished all the same, uh, <laughs> which is what Bayern can Bayern can do to you because I think it was quite clear when he was there that they 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 weren't that great going forward, and the the the, the accusation that kept being thrown at him was that oh yeah he did well setting up Frankfurt to defend and be hard to beat, but in charge of this team that has to attack, you know he doesn't know how to do that, and there were suggestions from within the dressing room that he wasn't I think the phrase was he wasn't uh, providing them with tactical solutions for how to break down teams you know he was just kind of letting you do your thing Um, so it's very interesting now that he's gone to Monaco 
And, uh, you know, they, they've scored the second most goals in the league, aside from Paris Saint-Germain. They're, they're the free-scoring Monaco with, uh, with, <laughs> with, with, with Vol- Kevin Volland up front, of all things. So th- th- that's something I didn't see coming, but they play with tremendous energy. And, um, and again, I seem to recall reading something about Monaco when they were appointed in. They, they wanted a manager to instig- instig- instigate some sort of high-pressing, high-tempo system, and that didn't that didn't feel like Reniko Kovac, but it's happening, Andy, and uh, they're playing very well. It's also looking at someone like uh, uh, Chouameni in midfield, who's one of those sort of younger players. They took a big punt on a couple of years, didn't quite come through, who's suddenly coming to fruition now. You know, Monaco, it's kind of swept, it's not swept under covered. I don't think there's a big conspiracy to, to hide this, but we kind of forget that Monaco took some big punts on a lot of younger players. They spent surprisingly big amounts of money on some young players, most of whom have not come through. And to be fair to them, it's been a quite a turbulent time at the club and it's not been the easiest environment for younger players to, to stake their claim. But it's interesting to see one of them uh, really fulfill some of the promise now. Yeah, I'm I'm still reading from what Andy was saying a moment or two ago, which I I think is the correct analysis about uh, Paris Saint-Germain ignoring the talent on its doorstep. It's just mind-boggling when you think about it. Uh, Of all the teams in the top four, they're the ones most likely to be able to uh, turn to uh, kids coming up to their front door. I mean, that's hopefully one of the things Pochettino can do, because I think Pochettino and Paris Saint-Germain has always been a little bit, a bit of an awkward fit in the sort of because they have all these superstars and I don't think obviously no manager is going to say oh I really don't want to work with Neymar but I don't think that, that that's the most natural fit for Pochettino um, Pochettino really likes the younger guys who'll just shut up and run as much as they can and, and, and do exactly what he says he, he loves working with people like that so you'd think for him if you have a cluster of these mega stars at the club and, and you can build a team of, of, of younger and more willing runners around them that seems to be a very logical model for uh, Paris Saint-Germain to follow and I think if you look at it from that perspective then Pochettino makes a lot of sense and it's interesting what you were talking about those um, stars not the young stars not being able to make it in Paris I always think of that when I look at Lille actually and um, looking between the sticks and Mike Magnon uh, one of the best goalkeepers in the division I would say probably the best goalkeeper in the division along with Kalo Navas and certainly the goalkeeper of the future um, who came through the academy at PSG didn't work moved an hour up the road to Lille and um, you know he was in the discussion when Chelsea were looking for a new goalkeeper um, before they uh, they they ended up um, they they ended up plumping for someone else so I think what Lille have built has been really interesting and I think if we take it all the way back with Lille when Christophe Galtier Took, took them over. The job that he's done there is absolutely extraordinary because when he took them over and um, we talked about, last talked about big spending with Monaco, um, Lille had spent a lot of cash under Bielsa for a lot of players who in many cases didn't really work. They Their spirit was broken inside the dressing room. There was a big fracture between Bielsa and the club and you know that's still subject of a, 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 a live legal proceedings in France um, in terms of um, potential compensation and, and what might be owed to, to Bielsa. And Galtier, who's traditionally quite a defensive coach, had to pick up Bielsa's squad 
and not get it relegated, which considering they play two totally different types of football, is a remarkable achievement. It's absolutely remarkable. And then to get them not only not relegated, but into the Champions League from there, and then having sold players along the way, including Nicola Pepe, um, to have converted them into a genuine title contender is, is something pretty special. He has done a phenomenal job. And there's, there's a sense that he might actually move on at the end of the season because there's been a bit of a fracture in the relationship between him and the board and the other people who run football operations at the club as as Lewis Campos has started to drift away from the club. Obviously, he was linked with the job at, at Tottenham a while back when uh, Jose Mourinho came in. So we'll see what, what happens with him. But I think at the moment, there is a sense because of not just because of how far they've come, but because of this uncertainty over Galtier's future, that this might be their one chance to do it. And I think if you went back um, a month or so and when PSG were really struggling domestically, there was, there was, there was like a straw poll, I think it was in Le Keep, of coaches and um, executives at other Ligue 1 clubs and most of them thought Lille would go on and, and win the league, which is something that's amazing, really, to think that they got themselves that position of favouritism. I think they've struggled with that a little bit. They've struggled with the enormity of this might only be a one chance. Now, of course, we saw Burak Yilmaz at 35 years old scoring a hat-trick for Turkey against the Netherlands um, uh, this this week. And I think the reality is, if he hadn't have been out for six weeks with a muscle injury, they'd still be top of the league and they'd probably have a few points in advance because he has been absolutely brilliant for them when he's played this season, even though they do have some depth in that squad. Um, but you look at some of their home performances recently. I mean, um, Lars pointed out them losing to Nîmes, who were in the relegation zone when they arrived in Nord Pas-de-Calais to, to, to play them. So that was, that was a great result for them. And then you look at that, you look at them struggling to get past other lesser opponents, dropping points against Brest, against Strasbourg at, at home. All of a sudden, they've got an entirely different pressure to deal with of teams turning up and saying, right, you have to, you have to, you have to break us down. And and that moving from underdog to fancied is is hard, I think. And you know, to a lesser extent, maybe that's something that Lyon has struggled with in 2021. 61e minute, séquence de jeu anodine. Lyon bénéficie d'un coup franc près du rond central. On est à plus de 40 mètres début de Porato, mais pour Juninho, la distance n'a jamais été un problème. It's the week of the international break, of course. But even within this international break, two coaches, top coaches, have left their jobs. Shall we start, first of all, with the German perspective, Lars? Yeah, Peter Boss is out uh, at Leverkusen, which is... 
Um, it's one of those things that in light of recent results, perhaps it isn't that surprising, but it is surprising given that, I mean, they were, they were almost top of the league earlier in the year and, and we were talking about it. I think I might have said, well, jokingly said on this pod, like, is, is this the season we have to really start taking Peter Boss seriously? Guess the answer is no. And, uh, and he, he is now out. And, and I, I feel, I feel for him a little bit, but the collapse they've had, um, with, with the performances, not just in the league, in the, the, the Europa League going out to young boys um, and, and losing a bunch of games domestically suddenly. Um, I guess they felt that things had to change. And I, and I think with, with Boss, I think he's a little bit a victim of the fact that when his teams are good... Um, it looks like they're playing with a lot of freedom. Uh, you know, the, the players are kind of buzzing around. And, and uh, you know, Kawi Harvest is an interesting example because we've seen at Chelsea with uh, Frank Lampard who really struggled to find where Kawi Havertz's best position is, whereas Peter Boss kind of gave him quite a lot of freedom to drift around and, and sort of find the spaces where he needs to. And, and when they're good, they look like they're just kind of expressing themselves and doing the stuff. Um, but that's sort of quite attacking way of playing. When it turns and you start conceding, they, they look a bit ragged because he doesn't do a lot of sort of... I, I bet you on Peter Boss training sessions, there's not a lot of defensive shape, you know. Their team who wants to have... Their, his teams want to have the ball, want to attack. And then when things start to go wrong, they go wrong in a way that makes you look at it and say, shouldn't the coach be telling these people where to stand? And like, should, should there be some sort of organization happening here? Is there someone who can help them do something? Because it looks very, very chaotic. And and he has pointed out that because he wants to play high up the field, because he wants to press high, when they get undone and they get countered on, it looks worse than it necessarily is. Uh, but but you can't get away from the fact that just defensively they've been completely shambolic in in the new year, uh, and and you can't have like a coach at this level, I think, in charge of a team when when it just looks so disorganized. You'll always get a lot of criticism, and there's always a chance that the club will tell you to go away, basically. I think that's it really, Lars, isn't it? It's it's the results, because um, to clarify, in 2021, just in this calendar year, they've lost 10 games already. Uh, I mean, for a club with their ambitions, that's totally unsustainable. And that's why they've, they've got rid of him. I tend to have a bit of sympathy for him. I think he's been a little bit unlucky. And there was the sense that when he arrived at Leverkusen, you know, the pressure isn't quite what it is at Dortmund or at Ajax for, for, for that matter, um, in that you don't have to win all the time. Um, and I, I know Dortmund don't necessarily expect to win the league, but you know they, they, they want a challenge. And um, the way the wheels fell off there was was quite alarming. But I think you look at the sort of young athletic players that he was inheriting as well, and you thought this is the sort of squad that fits for him, as well as there being a little less pressure in terms of results every single week. But it's ironic, really, that the, the results have undone him in the end because I think Simon Rolfes, um, the sporting director, um, said just in the lead-up to the game that they lost heavily and humiliatingly at Herter, um, who were really struggling at the bottom, who have been really struggling at the bottom and went into the game in the bottom two. Um, Rolf has said before that, um, us not getting into Europe next season is unthinkable. And it is unthinkable when you consider they were, what, 30 seconds away from going into Christmas as top of the table. And then totally on script as it's been more and more on script as, as the season's gone by, 
they absolutely gift Robert Lewandowski a goal, a winning goal in the game with, with, with Bayern. And that means that they're not top of the table at Christmas. And it's something that they've really struggled to get over. And, and I, Lars, you talk, talked about the, the, the Bosch system there. I, weirdly, I, I don't think too much of it is to do with his, his system. Obviously, if, you, if your results go that way, it's going to get pinned on the coach and there, there has to be some analysis of the coach. But I feel that the players have really fallen short and they've been undone by a lot of individual errors that can't necessarily be tied to the system. I think the players are actually quite culpable in this. And funnily enough, more recently, having been criticised for an apparent dogma beforehand, he's now been criticised for changing stuff up and moving away from his identity. I don't know what more you can you can do, quite frankly. There's a huge challenge for Hannes Wolf, who um, was at the Dortmund Academy and earmarked as a future Dortmund coach. It's not gone so well for him in subsequent jobs, having started quite well at Stuttgart. Um, so he's, he's quite a restless character. He's a coach with a lot of ideas. Um, but this for him is from now until the end of the season is quite an unexpected pop at a top job. So he'll, he'll hope to make the most of that. It's, it's fair enough, Andy, but you look at, if you look at the team that lost to, to Hertha Berlin, you know, you have Tup Soba and Jonathan Ty in the center of the fence who are, who are young defenders, who are, who are guys who, mm. you know, if, if you leave them to do a lot of one-on-one defending on their own, um, maybe you shouldn't be surprised that individual errors will come and maybe you should build a system that protects them a little bit more. And I'm not saying go full Hodgson, but, you know, you could have a, a little bit more structure back there. And there, as again, as two of the three goals were basically from counters or certainly after, you know, losing the ball and having a fast attack co- towards you. And, and, and they just look all at sea and you look at you wonder where's the, where's the guy ran over there and where's the center half. It, it, it just looks very chaotic a lot of the time, which I think always, you know, the coach will always come under fire then even more. So I think if, uh, because results can go against you for a variety for a variety of reasons, but if the team just looks like a rabble, I think that just reflects worse on the guy in charge. The other big coaching departure in Europe this week was a resignation, and it was a resignation with a difference. Actually, um, it's not often you see coaches resigning. Kevin Keegan, famously from the England job, but usually, usually what it is is that the coaches get sacked. This resignation, Les Randy, was. Um, actually, in my view, very sad, but also more profound than the departure, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, Dotton. And um, I think it's it's made, actually, it's made some people realise what Cesare Prandelli is, uh, uh, means to them and um, means to Italian football. And we all know what he means to Fiorentino, where he's, he's now left for the, for, for the, for the second time. Um, but he's someone who is widely liked in football, absolutely loved in in Florence, and it's it's not really gone right this second time. And I think you look at a lot of his post Italy career, and a lot of it a lot of it's not gone right. I think you look at his um, short and not that successful spells at um, in different footballing cultures, at Valencia and um, at Galatasaray, and it's. 
you know, it's, it's, it's been quickly clear that it's not worked. And it's really interesting, this letter, and really touching, this letter to the fans, um, where he talked really about how a lot of it's been personal stuff. I mean, he talked about there being dark moments that can can get on top of you. Um, he thought that some of the previous moments he'd had with um, Fiorentina, in his words, made me blind to the early signs that, that, that something wasn't right inside and that a dark cloud developed inside of me, changing the way I see things. So I've decided to step back for the good of everyone involved. Now, I, I know I'm not alone in saying that um, I really hope he finds... A, a place of, of, of greater happiness because um, he, he deserves to. He, he has had some some difficult moments that have been very well publicised. And, um, you know, people people are willing him to, to do well. He he, he, has, he has said, though, in this, that he thinks this this might be the end of, of his relationship with uh, football. And um, there's, there's a line in it that really struck a chord where he said, the world I've been a part of... Um, for my whole life probably isn't right for me anymore. I no longer see myself in it. And he talks, I guess he hints quite a lot about football changing and football moving on. And it has been a while since um, he, he's been at the absolute peak of his powers. And maybe a lot of that suggests why. But I think th- there are memories and the, uh, the comparisons been made in Italy recently of... Arrigo Saki saying that how he needed to step away from Palmer because um, it, it was piling far too much pressure on him. And it, it's so rare that you have someone who's an elite coach saying, because you're meant to be the leader, you know, we, can, we, we talk again and again and again about the importance of discussing mental health in football. And it's, it's huge. But I think for coaches, it's way harder to do that even than it is for players. And we can talk about the macho environment of the dressing room, but the coach is meant to be the leader. And for that reason, on many occasions, I feel that, you know, that that it must be very difficult for them to step forward and, and, and say stuff like this. So I think we can only applaud Prandelli for his bravery. And... Um, hope that he manages to get himself in a, a better place. Absolutely, 100%. Um, Lars, what did you make of this resignation letter? It puts football in a real perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. And obviously there's the the, the personal side to it um, and the way he describes the, the dark cloud. But also reading it just between the lines, it reminded me a lot about... Um, what, what Gareth Southgate has said about uh, loving the game but not liking the industry, um, which I think is is, is an understandable w- way to feel. And, and and he's completely right. There is this, the thing that really stands out from this is the part about how he doesn't feel like football is a home for him anymore. And, and I think, you know, being a manager has always been full on. But it's perhaps more so now than than ever before, with all the pressures from from various sides. I mean, there's no suggestion that um, he's not been treated well by the ownership or anything. But when you're in charge of these players, there's like there's all the agents and there's all the entourages and there's all the sort of interests in the team and all of this that that, that is pulling you in a thousand different directions. And you're not just in charge of the group of players. It's it's a much more complex job than that than that. And and that has gotten worse over the years. 
And uh, I do wonder if there are some managers who might feel like football today isn't um, isn't what it was a while back. It might not be for them anymore. I think today's the right word as, as well, isn't it, Lars? Because I, I, I don't know if, if it's a particular thing of this season. Clearly, this is something that's been building in Prandelli for a, a, a long time. But I think probably a, a lot of people are feeling the pressure even more so this season. I, I mean... I know that there are uh, lots of people in, in difficulty in the world with what, what's happened in the last year. Um, but with foot, football and footballers and football coaches and people who work in the game, I think they're seen as lucky that um, they can just get on with it. Whereas you're probably spending more time with those around you than ever before, sorting those exact problems that, that Lars is, is, is talking about. And everything's condensed into such a short space of time. It's incredibly intense. I think it's a, a lot to deal with. I, I think when this season is over, a lot of people in football will, will be grateful of the breathing space. Le disposizioni della portiere Vaniak, portiere di riserva della formazione dello Slavia. La rincorsa da parte di Mutu ed è gol! Rete di Mutu! Subito! Due minuti! 50 this week, something of a, a landmark was reached when Zlatan Ibrahimovic, the one and only, managed to get back into the Sweden squad at the tender age of 39. Um, it was it was emotional, wasn't it, Lars? Yeah, cometh the hour, cometh the old man, and uh, you know, Ibra is back. Um, it was it was noted by a lot of people that he had a, he had a bit of a cry during his press conference, uh, which was actually in relation to to his kids. He was asked, you know, if his kids were were and his family were proud, or how his family well thought of how his family felt about him being back in the team, and and he got very emotional because, of course. What we maybe don't think about is for that going away to these international camps means actually being away from your family. Um, and he he talked about how he it's difficult because he has kids who who cries now when he leaves, and uh, so it's uh, being retired from international duty. Of course, will have meant spending more time with them in, in these weeks, which he can't do anymore. Uh, but he's decided he wants to come back. Um, and I think with Ibra. Uh, I've seen what happens is he has these press conferences and there'll be a few snappy lines and then they get put into like banter tweets and then they get retweeted back and forth and people go, oh my God, he's like, he says so many annoying things. And uh, I think with Ibra, you have to kind of separate the the man from the meme, I think, Um, because there is a whole sort of marketing thing around him where he's sort of uh, uh, comparing himself to sort of grassland animals or, or, or whatever and, and, and talking about how great he is. And, and that's part of it. But that, that is so much mar- more marketing than anything else. And, and, and I think the, the real dynamics underneath these are quite interesting. Um, I think he comes back to Sweden as, as a guy who doesn't have to be there, as, as a guy who has decided himself that this is something I want to do now and, and who must understand 
that there are certain things that comes with that, that he won't necessarily get as much special treatment as a younger Ibra would have wanted. Uh, someone who he's even said, I don't necessarily have to play every minute of every game, which is not something he would have said a few years ago, um, because I think he knows his body now. It probably wouldn't be good for him for him to play every minute of every game. Um, but he said he had a line about how I, I want to help and contribute and I want to uh, help to decide the games that the coach wants me to decide. I mean, it, it was this sort of uh, language. So he, he comes across as someone who's a little bit more self-aware, if you look aside from the sort of occasional bursts of bravado, and and someone who we, we know uh, based on... Um, how he's fitted in back at Milan can be a very positive influence uh, on on the dressing room on on the younger players and and who I think can help this team a lot. I don't, there's always going to be a concern, you know. Ibra's back. Sweden were kind of fine without him. They looked like maybe a more balanced team, and it wasn't the Ibra show anymore. Will they lose some of that cohesion? And yeah, maybe, but they will gain uh, an Ibrahimovic who is a different guy to the guy who was ten years ago, and. And can give them a little bit extra in, in, in crucial moments of the game on the pitch, I think. I think that's it, isn't it, Lars? The fact that the, the, the quotes and the relentless slew of them, or I should say the relentless way in which they're packaged, um, makes us overlook sometimes, or makes football overlook sometimes, um, the, the pastoral role that he's grown into for a number of years now, I think a near decade for, for most of that spell at, at Paris. It's clear when you listen to um, younger players, including Marcus Rashford, who played with him at Manchester United, he managed to fulfil that role at Old Trafford as well. And it's the, the whole reason he was brought back to, to, to Milan. And I don't understand why people would be shocked if they know that, that he would maybe fulfill the, 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 the same role with Sweden as well. It's something he can do well. Of course... The added advantage for Jan Anderson, the coach, is he's not going to be stood on the sideline going, well, you, you lot are idiots for not picking Kulusevski, which I think is, <laughs> is, is probably something of a, a, a plus as well. But what I wanted to ping back to you guys, actually, clearly it's something that it's always been, the, I guess, the, the paradox of Zlatan, that someone who's... Um, portrayed at least as, as the ultimate individual playing for Sweden means so much to him and being recognized in Swedish culture means so much to him so clearly he's going to get a lot from it but how do we think Milan feel I mean this wasn't on the table when he arrived back there a year ago and now he's had a few little nagging injuries this season and obviously they've got the relatively young 34-year-old Mario Mandzukic to, to, to back him up now once he, once he finally gets fit. Um, but, I mean, it's not an ideal situation for them, is it? Your 39-year-old going off to, to play international football, especially when he's, he's such an important player for you. It's not, uh, but... I mean, this is initially targeting the Euros, obviously. And I, I don't... It'll be interesting to see, actually, how many, in the years going forward, how many international breaks he jets off to. Um, but I think he is, again, for all the things you say about Ibra, he's a guy who, um, who who looks after himself very well. And I don't just mean that in the sense that he eats right and keeps fit. Yeah, but he also, 
at 39, he isn't sort of trying to hair around the pitch and sort of burning off uh, all his energy constantly and just, you know, he, he's very he's very economical uh, with his, his power on, on the field uh, these days, as he has to be. But, but I think that, that that can help him to play a few extra games. And I think the fact that he's very upfront about saying, I don't have to play, you know, a game every single day. And I think he also suggested that, that I wouldn't, he went as far as suggest that that wouldn't necessarily be a good thing, and I and I, and I, I think that speaks to to a maturity that we maybe haven't always seen from him. And you know, if they're if they're playing a minnow, he might not have to play ninety minutes just because he's Ebra and 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 whatever. So I think I think they can manage the situation reasonably well, to be honest. Yeah, well, if I was his club, I'd say, you know, don't managers always say that you learn a lot from these international games? Well, uh, I don't know how much he's got to learn, but as far as Sweden is concerned, <laughs> um, well, he's he's their Pele, isn't he? You try and get a little bit more out of Pele uh, for every international um, competition. And for the Swedish people, what he represents is really the the new Sweden in so many ways, because of course, and you will know, uh, Lars as well, Sweden uh, has had its challenges with uh, immigration and and very strong uh, challenges with um, anti-immigration, I should say, really. And um, for somebody like him, uh, a a migrant child, if you want to put it that way, uh, to also be seen as Swedish first and foremost, you know, even despite his accent, because he has still got an accent. When you listen to him speak Swedish, he has still got uh, a heavy accent. And for a Swede, you know, heavy accent plus mm-hmm. dark hair means you are not quite yeah. a Swede, or at least it did once upon yeah, a time. Yeah, yeah. And now you, you're seeing Zlatan being sort of hailed as the years of Swede. We call it Auritz. Sven Skan in Sweden. I don't know if you have the same kind of thing in in, in Norway. You know, he could win or it's Sven Skan every single year he wanted to, even now. He means a lot to younger immigrants, but he means arguably even more. He's he's had that Swedish Player of the Year award. Exactly. I was going to say he means arguably even more to blonde-haired, blue-eyed, dye-in-the-wool Swedes than he does to... um, to, to migrant Swedes, if I can put it in that way. I think he'll make a difference for Sweden. And I think you're right when you say that it's the role that he represents um, in the dressing room, if you like, you know, inspiring all the other players. But I think he's still got a few goals in him. Otherwise, he wouldn't be playing in Italy. And I think if you look just on the pitch very concisely what he can do, I'm really intrigued to see him form a partnership with Alexander Isak uh, of uh, of Real Sociedad up there, who has certain similarities in how he plays to Rafael Leao. I think uh, there there are definitely sort of crossovers there, and um, and and Isak is someone who has a lot of talent and a lot of potential. Can be a bit inconsistent, but there's a really great forward there, and. Um, I can absolutely see him sort of uh, helping him uh, on the pitch for Sweden the way he's helped Leao uh, on the field for uh, for Milan. Let's move on to the game of the week. We always ask you to recommend a decent game for us to watch over the weekend. I think we'll start with Lars this time. 
Yeah, listen, you know, uh, I'm obviously, uh, international break, I'm very obviously going to go with the Nordic country, and but, but righteously so, I think, because with that result yesterday where uh, Turkey beat Holland uh, 4-2, that's kind of put the cat amongst the pigeon in that uh, the pigeons if there's only one pigeon you can't really put the cat amongst it uh, it had it has um it has really opened up that group with uh, Norway Turkey Montenegro uh, Latvia Netherlands and Gibraltar you're kind of assuming we were all kind of assuming Holland would win that one but of course having hired Frank de Boer anything can happen now uh, so so i think that that is completely open and having <laughs> now that they've lost uh that they've lost to Turkey lost badly to Turkey in the first game Norway Turkey which normally you'd see okay that's the sort of battle for second in the group suddenly becomes really interesting if Turkey can win that they're in a great position really great position to challenge for winning the group same if Norway can beat Turkey so that game has taken on a lot of importance Um, it'll be only our second game uh, with our new coach Stolle Solbakken who was very briefly at Wolves but is much more well known for doing tremendous work over the years with FC Copenhagen um He's a very interesting guy. He's probably the best coach uh, out there with a Norwegian passport, I would say. So he should be in charge of the Norwegian national team, and he is. And I'm really intrigued to see how he gets on. Can't really judge anything from beating Gibraltar 3-0, but his first sort of big game in charge against Turkey, who've just beaten Holland. That should be a really good game this Saturday afternoon at uh, 5 English time. So you forgot Ule Gunnar Solskjaer. But anyway, Andy. No, no, I didn't. (laughs) Well, I was I was going to say two things I, I, I took from that. Firstly, I was expect uh, expecting Lars to say, well, uh, it, there was his time at Wolves, but he's far better known for his solitary Premier League goal uh, for Wimbledon against uh, West Ham United. I was there. I was there. The the other thing is, I, I do feel that after uh, Norway's um, protest with the T-shirts about um, migrant deaths in the in, in the Qatar World Cup and, and human rights, I am fully expecting Norway to go on now, win the group, and then refuse to go to the tournament. I mean, there, there couldn't be a more incredible sporting gesture, could there? And Andy, you've got to follow that with your game of the week. I've, I've got to follow that with a boringly football-y game. Um, uh, get down Saturday night. It's got to be Serbia versus Portugal um, in New York, in Detroit, and even in LA because Serbia was super fun in that victory over um, Ireland the, the other night. Uh, Dusan Tadic is, is still going to be a huge influence on this group. Um, as producer Charlie always points out to me and, and, and Marcus on the Ramble point out to me, Portugal do love to make a meal of a qualifying group. They certainly did that in the opening game against Azerbaijan in in, in Turin. Um, So in Belgrade, I don't think it's a given. They won their 4-2 in their last qualifying game, what was a really exciting game. And with Portugal having a lot of attacking talent, Serbia having talent but being really quite slow almost everywhere over the pitch, um, I think it could be an exciting game. I I think we're going to get some goals. And of course, Cristiano wants to get closer to Ali Day's 109. He's on 102 at the moment. And it all really cheesed him off that he didn't, he didn't get one of those at least in Turin. Thank you, gentlemen. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network.